0: This season on The Quiet Life was made possible by our friends at T2, Tea Done Differently. And they're all about celebrating difference to make a difference, and creating a generation of tea lovers to unite the world for good. Now, T2 was born and brewed in Melbourne, Australia, and they get a kick out of turning the world of tea on its head, creating brews that take you on a journey, and traveling near and far to source the best teas from all over the planet. What they love to say is, a cup for me, a cup for you, that's T2. And if you want to find out more and discover their world of tea, visit them online at t2t.com. That's T the
1: letter, to the number, T E A dot com. This week on The Quiet Life. For me, the fundamentals of healthy eating and the, the most important things that food does for people in terms of their well being is that food is this incredibly important thing in people's lives it's, it's not only a source of pleasure it's also a way we have you know almost at quite a sort of fundamental level it's a way we have of bringing people together it's a way we have of punctuating our sort of our most important celebrations it's a way we have of making friendships it's a way we have of coming together with our family you know and those are, that, for me are the really important things about food you know it's about about sharing with people and it's about coming together and it's about community and it's about you know all those all those things so for me the healthy eating is when food does all that for you and almost without exception welcome to season 3 of the quiet life I'm Michael James Wong, author, educator, meditator,
0: and your host of the podcast, as always. I founded Just Breathe to help more people understand how to live mindfully, looking for ways to create opportunities for all people, friends and strangers alike, to come together to feel welcomed, to be heard, and feel inspired. In this season, I'm speaking to people doing the real work. The ones who are actively expanding conversations, challenging norms and narratives, and leading the way towards real and meaningful solutions from period poverty to food inequality, reducing racial prejudices, uncovering hard truths, and encouraging kindness for now and the next generation. These are the people showing us what it means to live mindfully in the world today. And my hope through this journey is to learn more, not only for myself, but to ask the questions that many of us are thinking but don't know where to start. And ultimately, to discover where we can begin, or perhaps continue, to do our part to help change the world for the better. Now is the time to lean in, to listen, and to act. Welcome to The Quiet Life. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of The Quiet Life. I'm back as always as your host, Michael James Wong. And on this episode, I'm actually joined by Anthony Warner, who's a professional chef, a writer, a curious investigator, and actually also known as the angry chef, and someone who's really challenging the... You know making us critically think more about the connection between food health and the planet um anthony welcome thanks for joining me today
1: Oh yeah thank you for thank you for inviting me
0: hey i mean it's it's great to have this conversation i mean over the past few seasons of of quiet life it's really about cultivating lots of ways that we can have personal practices understanding for ourselves about well-being but on this season what we're really doing is trying to expand the conversation and actually dig in a bit deeper and you know when I w- w- was told about the work that you do and I, you know we were introduced through, through mutual relationships, I thought it was really interesting um, hearing about the work, hearing about you as an individual and the approach that you take to kind of this world of food and wellness and actually talking about maybe the disconnections about it. So in this episode, what I thought we'd, we'd chat about is kind of to jump straight in and maybe ask you a little bit about you, your background and kind of how the whole angry chef thing came to life
1: yeah um yeah i can i mean uh, you know i i my background i suppose um, I, I trained in science i have a degree in biochemistry um, many many years ago and then um for various reasons i got into cooking worked in professional kitchens for for quite a long time so you know i'm a food person i've been that kind of a the thing that i've i've, I've dedicated my life to is cookery and, and enjoyment of food and A few years ago, 2006 and 2006, I started um, noticing a lot of stuff. I mean, I I look at food trends. As a a chef, you look at food trends. At the time, I was working in the food manufacturing industry, developing sort of products and helping make products healthier. And... um, I I started noticing a lot of stuff on um, social media and, and um, especially Instagram and, and also books coming out about a lot of younger bloggers and writers talking about food and health and the connections between food and health, which I thought was quite interesting. I thought it was quite an interesting development, you know, people talking about health so much. Um, but as I started to look into it, I started to worry quite a lot about some of the information that was being put out there. You know, I started to think, some of it was unscientific some of it was not you know um was not stuff i would be able to support some of the claims being made were were not were not um sort of um didn't didn't measure up with the evidence the scientific evidence about food and health that was out there um and so i started to sort of challenge that and i started to talk to friends and, and about it quite a lot um and to people i work with and and then I I thought well maybe I'll have a go at trying to write something and I wrote a blog um, called the Ang- I started a blog which initially was anonymous um, called the Angry Chef back in about 2016 and right. it sort of um, you know it was really designed to be shared with a few friends and a few colleagues you know just to, just to sort of uh, poke fun at some of the stuff that was was out there some of the ridiculous claims being made. And it and it suddenly became quite popular. I think a lot of people were were, were noticing a lot of this stuff and worried about it. Um, and it also started to take on a sl- slightly more serious angle as I looked closer in and found some of the sort of darker stuff of, that was going on within this within this sort of area which was you know supposed to be it was kind of termed wellness but actually some of it was, was really quite dark and quite unpleasant um, and the blog gained popularity and it very quickly turned into books and and you know i've, I've just finished writing um, my third book um, as sort of a part of a trilogy of angry chef books on, on different topics but the first one um, was the, the angry chef book was about different types of diets and taking some of the big Big popular diet fads and and exploring the science and explaining why the science behind them was was suspect, but also explaining how that can be quite harmful and damaging for people. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's been uh, an unusual journey, which I didn't really expect, but um, it's been, you know sort of taken me to some uh, some strange places, you know, including recording podcasts and wellness podcasts, which is something I never thought I'd be doing a few years ago. But uh, you know, I, I think it's important um, to have someone out there challenging some of this stuff because otherwise you know people can say anything and, and sometimes especially with people's relationship with food when you start playing around with that it can be quite damaging and i'm i'm sort of hopefully seeing myself as someone who who uh, you know, wants to protect and help people enjoy food and get value and happiness out of food without being made to feel guilty about it and that's kind of the heart of everything i do is to try and get people back from this sort of guilt and and um sort of difficult associations with food and get them back to sort of what food is should be about, which is enjoyment and pleasure and being a being part of celebrations and and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, all of this is really, really interesting. And and I, I first of all, thank you for being almost putting yourself in that line of fire to have these conversations. Now, when you kind of originally started having these conversations or seeing these things on social media or on the internet or at events, these types of things, I mean, could you give me a few examples? Like what types of things were you actually seeing that kind of worried you as a scientist and as a chef?
1: Okay. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll give one example there are loads because there's so many, there's, there's you know, many fad diets as there are, you know, people really, but, um, uh, the, the alkaline diet was, it was a classic one, which is quite an old idea. Um, but really, really, uh, based in, in what I would consider Sort of complete rank pseudoscience. It's not, you know, the, the the prospect that you can alkalize or acidify your body using different foods is is just not has no basis in truth at all. And I, I'd know I'd known about that many many years ago, but I noticed it. I said in about 2016, starting to resurface in a lot of blo- blogs and a lot of writing and people selling the alkaline diet. Mm-hmm. And this went right up to people claiming it as a cure for very serious diseases. Some people claim it's a cure for any disease. Lots of people saying it's a cure for, for, can be used as a cure or a treatment and a prevention of cancer, which is just not the case. And that's not just a mistruth, that's also a damaging mistruth because it has led, and there are many cases of it leading to people abandoning conventional cancer treatments in order to to cure themselves through diet, through sort of thinking they can somehow alkalize their body by eating lots of vegetables, which is just, you know, just not true. And you know part of the blog and part of the book is about taking that and explaining why that can't be the case why it's so damaging and looking at some of the cases of people who had been been hurt by that um false belief and also looking at some of the people who had exploited that and made an awful lot of money sure, selling these sort of quack dietary um cures and uh, you know like i said i think there's i think people talking about food and health is important um and i think it's a, an important debate to have but when it goes down that sort of route, and that's just one example, there are plenty of others, then you end up at a point where you know this, this idea of wellness becomes actually harmful. And I, I think there needs to be sort of policing of, of, of the sort of language that people are using. And when people start talking about the alkaline diet, and this included some very prominent, very highly paid, very influential bloggers and social media um, personalities in the UK. And in America, but I focused on the UK, really. Sure. That, you know, I, I felt that was a problem that needed addressing, and, 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 and so I did. And, you know, uh, <laughs> you're constantly fighting fires with these sort of discussions. But I think we sort of, uh, I think that has moved away from that sort of alkaline diet being part of the mainstream wellness um, wellness language. Sure.
0: And, and I think as always, I mean, there's always going to be different fads or trends or conversations that do pop up, not just in food, but in all aspects of wellness and actually in all aspects of, let's say, modern life. People are attached themselves to things that they can be, uh, that they can celebrate, things that they can talk about, things that they can kind of hang their hat on. And I think what's really interesting for me hearing this is that even first and foremost, you've, you've always approached food as a scientist, or you've approached it from the point of actually, maybe let's call it a uh, functional or actual well-being as opposed to maybe superficial or topical or conversational well-being. And I mean for you when you I guess when you first started on this let's call it journey between food and wellness was it always science first like when you growing up was it always I love science I love science and then I found food or it was both at the same time and then they just kind of married up.
1: Uh but probably a little of the latter really. I mean uh, uh, you know so- science is is something um is I mean, perhaps, un, perhaps the other way around. To a lot of people, you know, science is the thing that I love, and, and and cookery and food is is the thing that I do for a living. Right. Uh, which is perhaps a little little backwards. Most people are probably the other way around. But there there is that marriage between the two. Um, there is that very important um, you know discussion about nutrition that has to be based on on science. And nutrition is obviously very important for health. Perhaps not in ways that, that people easily understand. The other thing that I'm I'm really fascinated in. And has come more through my writing than anything else is the, the psychology and the decision making people have around food, yeah. and why people are so inclined to these false beliefs around food. You know why is it that food is kind of this gateway, often to to misunderstandings of science and pseudoscience. You know, nutrition science is probably the one the one touch point that that most people have with science. You know, that that's that's the the kind of bit part of, of, of scientific research and discovery which most intersects with people's lives you mm-hmm. know genuine real lives d- day-to-day lives so you know that's really important to remember um and i'm really fascinated by why that sometimes leads us to have these sort of uh, false beliefs around food or or to you know um often particularly with food science to believe um uh, you know celebrities or uh, over, over scientists, you know, I think we've seen that a lot with what's going on at the moment as well. But, you know, people have this sort of inclination to to believe, to to, to take belief from places, perhaps they should putting trust in places that perhaps they shouldn't be putting trust, and to not believe places where they should be putting trust, um, like sort of qualified scientists who spent their years live lives studying nutrition. So you know, I, I'm fascinated by that psychology as well, and I think that's really, really important. Um, I, I think the psychology of why we eat is 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 probably the least appreciated aspect of nutrition science. You know, the, the things that actually lead people to make decisions about food. Sure. Um, I, I think that it is so important and and incredibly understudied. We have, you know, people talk about sort of um, health related, diet related diseases. We have buildings full of people studying micronutrients and proteins and 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 fats and vitamins and and all these things, but. Uh, you know and we have huge amounts of money spent on stu- that the study of that aspect of the science we have very little on the study of psychology of science and why people eat the way they do and actually the psychology is probably the bit where you could do the most have the most impact on on people's health
0: right i mean that's really fascinating and obviously it's not a new conversation by any means in the sense of looking at both the nutritional aspect and the psychology behind why mm. we eat and i think you're absolutely right in this understanding that probably even more over the past let's say five to ten years as the rise of internet, social media, all these kinds of things that lots of conversations have kind of sprung up. I mean, what what do you think is the place then for people who are, you know, I mean, we, we can't take away people's genuine passion to want to help people to want to share things to want to, to, to advocate for, you know, the benefits of healthy eating. I mean, where is the place in conversation? You know what is the role of let's say, influence, as it intersects with expertise?
1: Um, I, I think, you, know, you can't deny how important um, influence influencers and influencers are. You know, expertise is only going to get you. you know, expertise is not going to sort of sell um, huge numbers of books. It's not going to sell um, sort of health advice because people people actually want to have. Want you know, people are more likely to be influenced by people who. for for various complex reasons whether they aspire to be like them or whether they sort of have a particular sort of affinity for them or whether they think that someone like them there's there's many reasons why people are more likely to to um, take advice from influencers Uh, and the role of influencers, then in my my mind is to look at what is actually evidence-based and look at what is actually important and only tra- and translate that information and no more. And the role of the scientists um, and, and the sort of nutritional science um, community is to to help those influencers understand, you know, what good quality evidence is and and, and you know what what are responsible things to be communicating. Mm. Um, and yeah, that, and that, that's a very difficult balance to, to to find. That's a very difficult thing to play because there's lots of people who. Who look like experts but aren't really experts. There's lots of people who, um, you know, just are interested in selling a particular narrative based on an ideological belief. There's lots of people who, you know, j- just are are interested in making money out of people, and exploiting people who are, you know, perhaps desperate and looking for answers because they haven't been able to find um, solutions to their their health and well-being woes within conventional conventional healthcare. so there's all sorts of people who you know, there's all sorts of problems with that but but we really need to find a, a better balance a way of get, taking good quality scientific information and getting the people who who have influence to be to, to communicate that it, it doesn't happen enough one of the big problems now is that we have social media and the, what that's mm-hmm. done is put people into silos very much you know so you have sort of, sort of silos of information and, and bubbles where where people exist so you have a load of different quite extreme beliefs which are, are perpetuating and not really talking and communicating with each other and, you know, and i think the way we access information has dramatically i mean more than anything else more than any other change in, in society in the last 20 years has been the way we access information you know when i went to university I had to go to a, a big library if I wanted to pull up a scientific paper, and I had a small number to choose from. And I could, mm-hmm. you know, a few ways of researching. Now I can access any any scientific scientific paper using my like written thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of papers on any subject just by typing a quick search on my phone. So the way we access information has dramatically changed. You know, uh, and, and what we need to what we need to do is get get better at interpreting that information. You know, you used to go to universities to learn information from someone who knew more than you now the important thing because we all have access to more information than anyone can store in their head now it's about interpreting and finding out what's good quality information so the way you know that's changed in the past 20 years and the world is kind of adjusting Mm. to that and making sense of it is incredibly difficult but you know so it's not surprising we get some of these problems but um i think it's really worth um trying to to get better at that communication sure
0: I mean, especially now, especially now, as the world has sped up, there is technology, there is instant access, there is instant gratification. Do you think there has almost kind of been this creation of people needing or wanting to be experts sooner or quicker? Do you know what I mean by that? Like this opportunity that we can be really passionate about something. I mean, in your category, we're talking food. In mine, we can talk about mindfulness, meditation. Someone else could be talking about writing or even sports and this need of appearing or feeling this expertise to share you know do, do you think that's kind of an aspect of kind of this this wider what you would call i guess problem with kind of the dissemination of of proper information
1: yeah i mean absolutely I mean, well yeah we have this um uh... <laughs> You know, real, real. I mean, the information is this is this huge problem, and um, you know. So if you you have, and everyone has access to information now. So how do you stand out? If you want to stand out, how do you stand out? And you, you take an extreme position often. You know. Um, so I'm not I'm not saying that a lot of the nutrition stuff is conspiracy theories, but you know, conspiracy theories. It is said that that's a way that people have. Of of making themselves feel like they are an intellectual without actually the, the going through the process of of, of of spending years years studying something. So if you take an extreme conspiratorial position uh, that's different to everybody else, you feel like you have special knowledge and you you can share that with a group and they can feel like they're they're receiving special knowledge from you and that that can be sort of very rewarding for people. Um, so th- and that that leads to these sort of um, you know people instant then people instantly become like an expert then if they're sharing something which is different to what everyone else is saying and that that's that's very problematic because mm. you get these extremes of extremes of um, belief in in um, nutrition um, and you get these extremes of, of behavior you know i i look at nutrition now very much as being um quite uh you know obviously you know there's there's less religion in in the world now, Germany, certainly in, in, in the UK there is, and we're far less religious country. Uh, but people still have that need to signal something about themselves to the world. People still have the need to sort of have, have an identity that people um, associate with them. And for many people, uh, nutrition has become that, you know, how you eat, and particularly right. what you don't eat has become a, a really important way of signaling something about yourself to the world. So you know, many of the people I interact with on social media will have. You'll, I'll look at their social media profiles. And I know it's not the real world, but I'll look at their social media profiles and you know what, what how they eat is is one of the most important things about them. You know, so they'll be vegan or be carnivore or they'll be um, you know low carb, high fat or they'll be on you know, various different diets. But that's that's really high up, often at the top of how they. The signal they're giving out about themselves to the world, how they identify themselves—it's so a very important part of people's identity, almost in the same way that religion is. It tells you something about that person if they say they're on a carnival diet, or or they're on, they're on a vegan diet, or, or you know, or, or they're taking some sort of extreme position in nutrition which is against the conventional science, and that's a very strong part of their identity. But what the problem with that is, once it becomes part of their identity, then then it, it becomes quite difficult to then challenge mm. that thing about them because because that's who they are. That's not just a thing they know. That's that's who they are. That says something fundamental about them as a person. So when you start challenging that, then, you know, they're very resistant to once they've taken up that as part of their identity, they're very, very resistant to to hearing any information that counters that. Um, and that's, you know, that's sort of one of the fundamental problems we have in nutrition discussions at the moment is that it's become so entrenched and so tribal
0: yeah and i I actually even think on a deeper layer it's not even just the nutrition or the food it is very much essence to our our human understanding our behavior of of labels identities the same way as you might say i'm a lawyer i'm a doctor i'm a father you know I'm, i'm a bicyclist we have these needs to attach ourselves right the attachment to let's call it everyday situations or iterations or conversations that allow us to not only make sense of ourselves to the world but others to make sense of us and you're right and oftentimes when that is threatened or when that is challenged or maybe when that is just investigated even at a very basic conversational level it can make us feel a bit agitated or it can make us feel a bit um threatened because maybe we believe in something or build ourselves up to believe that we have a certain identity that maybe can be more expanded as opposed to just sit in the box of i eat this i do this and and i function this way i mean for you and i look at this uh, as maybe uh, as a very simplistic question after this conversation so far is is fundamentally for you what is healthy eating then
1: (laughs) um i I take a very different stance to a lot of people um look i'm all for people eating well um i think very few of us eat enough fruit and vegetables. I think that's pretty good evidence to mm. to support that. So yeah, eat more of them. Um, you know, for people who do um, eat that way, oily fish is generally felt to be being pretty good. Some unsaturated fats, perhaps cut down on saturated fats. But but generally speaking, um, I'm not I'm not one who preaches much sort of specific advice about about healthy eating. It's going to depend on on your identity. It's going to depend on what you can afford. It's going to depend on what you know, what you want. But for me, the fundamentals of healthy eating and the the most important things that food does for people in terms of their well-being is that food is this incredibly important thing in people's lives. It's, It's not only a source of pleasure, it's also... Uh, you know a way we have uh, you know almost at quite a sort of fundamental level it's a way we have of bringing people together it's a way we have of punctuating our sort of our most important celebrations it's a way we have of making friendships It's a way we have of coming together with our family you know and those are, that, for me are the really important things about food you know it's about about sharing with people and it's about coming mm-hmm. together and it's about community and it's about you know all the, all those things so for me that healthy eating is when food does all that for you and almost without exception if you're on some sort of restricted diet if you're on some sort of extreme diet if you're cutting out of certain groups of food if you become evangelical that you can never eat certain things then that doesn't bring you together with people with food that excludes you from from the really important things that food can do so unless there's there's really good medical reasons not to um, I, I really, I, I genuinely believe that it is harmful for anyone to be in any of those sorts of diets. And, and there will be people who have ideological reasons for not eating certain things. And I, I completely respect that. And I think that's really important. And there, yeah, I certainly respect people who have uh, medical reasons for not eating certain sure. things. Sure. But you know, if you look at people who, who for say, if you look at CDAX who obviously can't eat gluten because it's extremely harmful for them to eat anything with any gluten in. But there's been various studies of of celiacs looking at how when they move to a celiac diet how that affects them and obviously you know various aspects of their health improve but there is a real danger and it's something we really need to really need to address is that it has an impact on their mental health you know it has an impact on on the the ways they can sort of come together with friends it hasn't it has an impact in sort of occasions when they're going out which is supposed to be enjoyable um, end up being sort of difficult and, and hard to navigate, especially early on. And, uh, you know, that for me gives me an insight into how damaging it can be to be for people to be on restricted diets when there's no reason to because they will put themselves in all those same positions. They will mm-hmm. exclude themselves from social occasions. They will, you know, have anxiety about eating a slice of, 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 of birthday cake to celebrate someone's birthday, you know. They, they, they will have, you know, for me... Food is you know supposed to be this great joy of life and and if you if the ideology or the diet that you follow is is creating stress and anxiety around that and, and and guilt and shame around that you know those things stress and anxiety and guilt and shame should have no place in our diets and they are you know as long as you're eating a reasonably okay varied diet that stress and anxiety and, and shame and guilt are the things that are going to be the most harmful thing about your diet if that's included in your diet. And those things are things that can, can harm your mental health, but that can actually genuinely harm your physical health as well. You know, that can have a massive impact on on, on your overall well being. Um, and we forget about that. And we, we forget about that far too much. And that for me that's 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 what healthy eating should be.
0: I mean this is for me probably one of the most refreshing conversations I've had in a while about food because fundamentally, with with my work, where it's obviously quite different to your work. Is I mean, you focus around the food and the conversation. I often focus around how it looks like from a, a mindfulness and mental health point of view. What we're actually talking about, which is what you know, this 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 common ground is fundamentally the bigger the bigger issues or the bigger benefits of how we eat, how we engage. And I think what's really nice and what I'm really hearing from you is this idea that that food in many ways is is the macro is 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 the micro engagement of community of humanity but it's that sense of the occasion the celebration the social situation all of those things and you know you said people often forget i actually think people often don't even draw the lines of of connection maybe mm. you know they don't actually realize that actually by going to a you know a dinner party where they can't have gluten and all of a sudden now they're sitting there the whole time stressing out going am i going to insult someone am i going to have something to eat this is stressing me out i'm a lot of you know i have a huge amount of anxiety around this and it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds because of a fundamental food choice. And granted, obviously, as you said, you know, if they're celiac and gluten-free and those types of things, that is a medical thing. But if people are saying, okay, well, I'm not going to have any carbs. I'm not going to, I'm only going to eat raw foods. I'm only going to do these things. You maybe widen their appreciation for what they're putting in their mouth, but you're narrowing the appreciation of how much impact it can have on the rest of their mental health and and the psychology that, that's built into to all of this.
1: Yeah, I think that there's a really interesting study. Um, it's, it's quite an old study now, but it's, it, it was by an American uh, food psychologist called Paul Rosanne. And he he looked at attitudes to food in, in different cultures. Um, So attitudes to food in, in, in a town in America where dietary related disease and dietary related ill health was particularly high and diet quality was particularly poor. And then took a town in France where, um, you know, diet diets were generally better and, and diet-related disease and ill health was generally you know a lot lower in incidence. And he looked at just not not um, what people were eating, but he looked at their attitudes to food. And, and, and the, the classic result of that experiment was that people were showing a picture of a chocolate cake, a nice looking piece of chocolate mm-hmm. cake. And in America, um, in the American town, the, the, the people who looked looked at that picture of a chocolate cake, they were told to say what the first um, word that came into their mind was right. the first word unsurprisingly was was guilt and in, in the town in france where people had a much better quality diets the first name that came into people's mind was celebration you know and right. i think that sort of really vividly shows different how different sort of cultural attitudes to food can affect the way we eat you know because we're taught to feel guilty about certain foods certainly in the uk certainly in american culture there's a lot of feeling guilty about eating certain things whether that's because you believe there's something dangerous or contaminating in within that food or whether it's just you believe that's a sort of indulgence that you shouldn't be having and when you do that you know i think you create a problematic relationship with food and that can feed into a problematic diet when you demonize certain foods, you know, there's plenty of evidence of uh, the psychology mm. of, uh, of eating. That if you demonize certain foods, then they become more important. They become more salient. Sure. You think about them all the time. You think, "I'm not, I'm not going to eat chocolate. I don't want to eat chocolate." You're just thinking about chocolate all the time. Whereas you see it as a nice indulgent thing that you have perhaps in moments of celebration, it's a special occasion, or you share it with someone, and it's a nice thing. Then it's not so salient. And if if you allow it, if you allow yourself it, but understand its meaning in your life, then it's not incredibly salient. It's not something you're desiring all the time. So when you see it, you don't have to eat it. But for some people, for certain if you're making people feel guilty about it every time, that's going to achieve this sort of status in their mind, which is far greater than it actually should be. Um, and I, I, I sort of fundamentally believe that we have that's what we get wrong about food. You know, what happens in, in the UK? Certainly a lot of talk about health eating at the moment in the UK, mm. certainly COVID-19 related but also just related to there's been a national food strategy published recently and, and a couple of reports and there's a, there's a drive to help people lose weight or whatever but it, it's so much of it ends up being about making people feel guilty and making people feel they they're doing stuff wrong and uh, and that they're eating all the wrong things and that, that, that there are good foods and bad foods and that you demonize all these foods but you just you end up creating desire for them i believe you know, it's difficult to find empirical evidence for that. You can find some sort of studies doing which which kind of confirm that as a belief. But you can't. You know, it's hard to know sort of empirically if that's, that's the case. But it feels like that's a really important thing that we're getting wrong about food is we're yeah. telling people what not to eat. So much of it is like, don't eat this, don't do that, don't do this behavior. And that's you know, that's a, that's a common psychology. That's a, that's a common way of trying to motivate people, because you know, when we learn about health behaviors as a child, we're told not to do things. We're told not to play in the road. We're told not to taste that, to take that out of your mouth, to put that down, to not sort of ride around on the back of the dog or whatever. So so when it comes to behaviors that make us healthy, we kind of get drawn to these negative things. So don't do that. Don't eat that. Don't eat sugar. Don't eat fat. Don't eat carbohydrates. Don't eat you know all these things. What we should be doing is really looking towards more positive, general things. So kind of eat more vegetables, eat more fruits, spend a bit more time eating. You know, save certain things for indulgent special occasions, that sort of thing. You know, understand that when you're when you're having, you know, that certain things are sort of special and and, and keep them that way. Th- those sort of things. You know, healthy diets are almost always more varied. You know, they're almost always like eating loads of different stuff. The, the unhealthy diets tend to be ones which are very restricted and only a few things. So if you only eat hamburgers and chips, then yeah, that's 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 not great. If you if you only eat kale and cucumber, that's also not great. What you need to do is eat a load of different stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I believe we fundamentally get it wrong in terms of trying to motivate people towards healthier eating behaviors because we end up just pushing it all back towards guilt and giving stuff up where it should be more about trying new stuff.
0: Hey, guys, welcome to your T2 tea, tea Break, which, as always, is our moment to pause in every episode just to sit back and enjoy a cup. Now this week, we are drinking the Quiet Mind Tea. Now this is a tea that I really enjoyed because it kind of has a very similar qualities to kind of an afternoon meditation, right? It's a great way to pick you up and give you a bit of energy back uh, anytime through the day. But for me, I've been doing it in the afternoons, which has been really, really nice. Now I'm joined, as always, uh, by Nikki, our show producer and resident tea lover. And uh, you've got this tea, uh, I know you love it as well, but tell me a little bit more about how you've been drinking it this week.
2: I'm just going to start by saying this my favourite Tea 2 tea. Mm. Um, I just love it, like it smells so good and it tastes so sweet. It's just uh, the right balance for me. All the ingredients are organic as well, which for me is really important. I spend a lot of time making sure that my food is from good sources, so that's nice it's got adaptogens in it which are like a type of herb that help you deal with stress Um, ashwagandha shisandra and ginseng Mm. so that's what's giving you that calming feeling you said you really enjoy it that's what's giving you that balance but it also has quite a lot of other ingredients in it
0: yeah like i'm reading there's like lemongrass and marigold and calendula there's rose there's fruity apple there's a lot of kind of sweet flavors in there
2: Mm. yeah but they all give you a lot of good benefits as well so Healing properties, soothing, anti-inflammatory—kind of everything you could possibly want from a tea, really. Nice. Yeah.
0: I mean, what's your favorite way to drink this right now?
2: So this sounds weird, but I really like it with a piece of dark chocolate.
0: I don't think that's weird at all. I think <laughs> a lot of people probably would enjoy it.
2: But you would like no—you would normally think to tie tea and chocolate, but um, yeah, it's just—it goes really well with just like a bit of dark chocolate on an afternoon, and you just want to have a little treat and sit back and relax and then get back to your day if you are quite stressed out it works well
0: great i mean i think that is a great piece of advice and a lot of people will probably uh, take that on board it's been a great chance to chat about the tea on this tea break guys if you want to find out more about the quiet mind as always it's in the show notes you can also log on to t2t.com to find out more about the specific qualities or best ways to drink it. And um, as always, if you've enjoyed this tea break, uh, make sure you take these last moments just to sit back, close your eyes, and just breathe. Now back to the conversation. Yeah, I mean, and I really like the way that you look at that. And I mean, obviously, looking at the initiative that just was put out in the UK, which, you know, it talks about uh, no junk food advertising past nine o'clock, limit buy one, get one free offers, no sweets at the checkout. Um, calorie counts must be on food menus um, and consultation on alcohol I mean all of these things to your point very much are skewed to the negative they're skewed to a negative bias to really show people that essentially if you do the opposite then you're falling into the negative cycle I mean as someone who kind of works both in the food and the science side of it and maybe even this sense of how we can kind of look at the language of positive behavior I mean that same idea of let's say putting calories on the menu or sweets at the checkout you know, what What would be an easy way to just simply flip that kind of language so it's more of a positive behavior as opposed to just negativity for people to digest?
1: Um, it's, you know, actually, you know, I, I completely get what you're saying. You know, we are drawn to these negative things and all those things did sound negative. Some of them I don't think I'd necessarily disagree with because, you know, you're just kind of rearranging the environment, you know, if you're not putting things by checkout. It's not, you know, if you were saying to people, don't do that, don't eat that thing then i think that would be bad but if you're just moving it a bit out of sight i don't think that's such a bad thing Mm -hmm. kind of redesigning the environment slightly to try and push us towards healthier things and that's what we should be doing we should be redesigning the environment not to stop people doing negative things but to try and encourage them to do more positive things but does that that not then
0: but just anthony does that not then only try to uh, address it at the tangible level in the environmental level as opposed to the psychological or the behavioral
1: oh yeah it does you know and that's why those sort of those sort of um those sort of interventions won't actually show a reward on their own you know the the um but the, but the cat i mean i'll go back to the, what one you're saying the, the one thing i was really worried about is the calorie labeling in restaurants right for for, for for a couple of reasons firstly I, I i don't think there's there's much evidence or any evidence actually that 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 works that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world with like, these sort of interventions because it's in a complex system so a single intervention rarely works on its own but uh, you know my 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 problem with the calorie labeling in restaurants is you know it, it can have a negative effect so often you know there's been plenty of evidence of people sort of wanting to eat the higher calorie options because for some people that's just like better value for money isn't it right I mean, if you're having something with lots of, <laughs> lots of calories calories sure. per pound yeah. or whatever that, that that that's kind of something people want to do i i, I think it's you know, the, the thing that I said about that sort of uh, those sort of moments of celebration for most of us, for the vast majority of us, going out for a meal is a moment of celebration. Oh, absolutely.
0: Now more it's than a ever. moment
1: of joy. And and I think if you're putting in them and it's not happening every day, it might be for some people, but for most people, it's not happening every day. And for the vast majority of people, it, it's not. Um, and it's a it's a it's a time when we're coming together and it's bringing us together so st- you know, then suddenly reminding people, oh, here's, here's the calories, make sure you don't eat too many calories. I, I think that's that's not particularly pleasant. And I think that's taking away from what the experience should be. And you're making people feel guilty and, and all those things. It's also I mean, there's a real danger. It might be very triggering for some people who are, you know, there are plenty of people who who are you know, struggling with their, their eating behaviors and, and struggling with eating disorders for whom that is going to be quite a triggering, difficult thing. Uh, and there's plenty of evidence of that. I'm not, you know, I don't mean you completely. can't, You can't completely design the world around that. But I think when you've got an, a, an intervention which doesn't seem to do much good, and only seems to, I think, I think the whole calorie labeling in restaurants is is something that we sh- we shouldn't be doing, personally. But but you know, I mean, when you talk about the psychology, I mean, yeah, you know, I think I think when you redesign the environment slightly, then that does have a psychological influence, you know. And if you, if you're saying the the things that are the really good value, um, the foods that are really good value are perhaps foods that are just a little bit little bit healthier, the, the fruits and the vegetables and the pulses and the beans and the tin tomatoes and those sort of things that people might might use to make sort of slightly healthier meals rather than. You know what it is now, which tends to be sort of crisps and sweets and snacks. Then, then that might help. You know, because people generally gravitate towards these, and and, and they'll just it'll have a sort of slow, slow and perhaps small influence on people's behaviour. And that'll be one part of a much bigger picture. You know, sure. The, 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 the bigger picture in terms of obesity interventions has to be a sort of a whole system wide systemic approach, um, which is going to depend a lot on on um, you know restructuring um, our our cities it's going to depend a lot on just changing people's societal attitudes to food um, and it's going to depend on on sort of helping people who are, are struggling with certain aspects of health and uh, mental health you know it, it's, it's 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 a huge huge intervention if you want to really tackle diet related ill health it's, it's a huge system-wide approach that's needed um, there's no small interventions there's no restructuring of Shelving, which is going to going to make a make a bit make a big difference on its own, but you have to do lots of things, and you have to do all at the same time, and you have to be progressive, and you have to think really hard about what you're doing. The thing that I'm most, I, th- I think, is most important in all of that is to remember what it is you're trying to achieve, because too often, um, and almost universally across the world, and in, in all sorts of health authorities and and public health interventions, we talk about obesity prevention which I think is problematic in itself because I'm not I'm not worried about about how much someone weighs. It doesn't matter if they're healthy. Um, you know, we, we should be we should be looking at how healthy people are and we should look at interventions which are going to improve people's health. And I think if we we looked at interventions which are about improving people's health and we had our sort of campaigns based on making people healthier rather than you know the the language of sort of battling obesity and fighting obesity and and, and and sort of battling and fighting with people's bodies i think we would we would have much better interventions we would have far more success and i think that's the underlying problem mm. of almost every large-scale public health intervention on on these sort of matters is that it's always about fighting obesity obesity has correlations to some 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 some, uh, some types of ill health but it's often often a sign of something Deeper um, and more important and actually if you took away the link between obesity and, and ill health It wouldn't be a problem in it in, in, in and of itself, you know we should, we should remember that very clearly, you know, and there are many things you can do Which will improve people's health without sort of um, Without Changing their weight. And there are also many things you can do which will change people's weight Which will be very bad for their health you know, if I wanted to make people lose weight across this country Uh, there are plenty of really really harmful drugs i could give them which which would which would make them lose weight but they wouldn't be any healthier but they would be a lot thinner and we 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 too often completely conflate um thinness with health and i think that's a really really problematic thing to do Mm.
0: and i think that's really really important to to mention and to acknowledge because there is this sense that you know thinness is health or fat is bad i mean there is a lot of truth of, of how much that we need but also at the same time to your point the, the psychological and the sociological effect for people to associate those at such a fundamental societal level. I mean, I, I know you mentioned often in your book and in talks, I mean, you talk about this idea that that health in its own right is actually a societal issue. It is a conversation of inequality. But, you know, oftentimes I hear and I, and I hear this through through conversations I have that healthy eating or good food is a choice of privilege right? It's, oh, I, you know, it, it is linked with, do you have the means to afford better food, fresher food, uh, you know, you know, more organic food? I mean, where do you sit within that conversation?
1: It, I think it is very, there's a big, there's a big debate about that, this in the, in the UK at the moment, um, mm. for, for various different reasons. There's um, a report that came out recently, and there's a couple of sort of social media comments from people who sort of uh in a quite privileged position shall we say and they're you know with political influence as well who are saying you know that we have this myth that that, that um that people can't afford healthy food well you know why don't they just eat oats and potatoes and that sort of thing you know that, that's a very condescending or a sort of Marie internet like language uh, about these issues uh which are is so problematic and is so damaging but you know when you actually analyze what you know the how how expensive uh or how cheaper you know healthy food is or you know in inverted commas healthy food um then yeah fruit and vegetables are incredibly cheap in in some in some instances you know certain stuff you can buy which is perfectly healthy is cheap and it is possible to cook you know good food on a low budget um without much money and you know it's certainly cheap certainly very possible to 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 if you're going to spend the same amount of money on a McDonald's you could you could easily cook yourself a massive home cooked meal probably for, for for a fraction of the cost and I, there's no doubt about that but it but it misses a lot of the fundamental points about what drives people's food choices and why they eat a certain yeah. way and why people are suffering from sort of dietary ill health and why that does correlate very strongly on a on a socio economic gradient you know people who the sort of disease we're talking about, um, so cancer and type 2 diabetes and heart, you know, cardiovascular disease, those things are in, in you know, pretty much every, you know, every country over a certain certain wealth level are sort of correlated on a, on a socioeconomic scale. So the people Who um, are poorest are more likely to suffer from those diseases. Are more likely to lose life years to those diseases, and there's no doubt about that. You know, obesity is 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 slightly unusual in that regard. There is a there is a correlation, but like I said, I'm I'm not I'm not sort of someone who thinks of obesity as as a disease or or necessarily a problem in and of itself. Uh, You know, it's something that does correlate with certain diseases, but you know what. If you look across socioeconomic gradient, people are far more likely to die. in the UK, for instance, in the poorest parts of the UK, you know people people have sort of ten years left, less life expect, life expectancy than in the richest parts of the UK. But in terms of healthy life expectancy, you know it's it's more like twenty five years the difference. You know, so people will will get sick and they will live a, a long time um, you know ill or disabled or you know and all these things. and, and that's that's a huge, huge problem um and that is partly related to different quality diets but it's 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 partly just related to the lived experience of 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 not having very much money you know and living in a, a stigmatized existence in in a in a society which which doesn't really care for you properly and you know that that has a, a, an effect on your health and it has effect on your body and it, it is likely to cause Type two diabetes. It's likely to cause cardiovascular disease. It's likely to end up with people gaining large amounts of weight for various sort of hormonal dysfunctions. It's likely to result in in, in, in people dying a lot earlier and being a lot sicker. Um, and you yeah, know that, that's, that's that's something we have in, in society now. Now we t- like to like to push that back onto people's lifestyle. Um, it, it's very very common for that to happen. And 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 sort of people are sort of othered in a way. People are saying, "Oh, these these people who who are on on lower incomes, they they're just irresponsible. They're not eating properly. They should be eating more vegetables." You know, look, I I'm a rich person, and I found these cheap vegetables, and I can make a meal out of it. You know, and that's that's a that's incredibly problematic I and mean, it completely misunderstands sort of mm. the situation people are in you know, because, because at the end of the day, most of the problems they're having are related to the fact that they don't don't have very much money and they lead a stressful, stigmatized existence. They're exposed to violence. They're exposed to poor housing. They're exposed to sort of constant threat uh, of, of sort of financial repossession and all these things which have an enormous toll on people. Now, sometimes that leads people to poor dietary choices. You know, because you, know, you you have economies like economies in 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 poorer parts of any you know, the UK and you know, various countries around the world. They are they are designed to facilitate stress relief. You know, they are designed to help people um, cope with stress, and that can be alcohol, it can be cigarettes, it can be drugs, it can be sort of certain certain types of food. Um and you know also people have things driving people's dietary choices are, are are not the things that drive dietary choices of wealthier people. you know there's a time constraint. people are working, people are tired. people don't like to have food waste so they don't like to try new things. People you know don't like to have power running on, on, on cookers and cook things for for a long, long time. So there's an enormous number of restrictions people don't think about. but but you know, more than anything, and one thing that people really don't think about is you know what? When 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 you don't have much money, you know I've been I was a, I was a chef for, for for half half of my life um, before I started writing, and yeah, you know, in the early parts of my career, I didn't earn very much money, and I lived in some some of the sort of uh, you know, some of the more difficult parts of the UK. Um, so I, I have you know I I, I have exposed mm. to these sort of environments, and chefs are people who don't work earn very much money. They're the waste and the strays, so the people you're working with and the communities you live in are you know very much lower um, socioeconomic group communities and you you really experience this but what 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 people forget is also do you know what you have a pretty difficult life and you don't have many nice things going on and so it's quite nice to have something some some nice food it's quite nice to be able to get a takeaway that's your equivalent of if you're not going to go on holiday you're not going to you know uh, go to a nice restaurant you're not going to do any of those things so you know an occasional treat an case of is what you do that that that's the thing that you do that keeps you a bit sane and you know people almost look at people's choices in in dietary terms and, and really look down on them and say you know why can't you just be more responsible and it mm-hmm. I, I find that one of the you know, it's so difficult to, to to have any sympathy for people people making those sort of um, statements and decisions because they just don't understand uh, the complexity of what's going on. You know, and if we really are, you know, the the underlying issue, the underlying thing causing all of it is inequality, you know, is socioeconomic inequality. And unless we're going to address that, then, you know, we're never going to address these, these massive um, health inequalities. We're never going to address, you know, any of that without really addressing the fundamental underlying issue of socio-economic inequality. And the problem is socioeconomic inequality is incredibly hard to address. You can't do that easily. So what you do is you fall back on people's lifestyle and you fall back on criticizing people's lifestyle. And, you know, that's that's, that's unhelpful and it's insulting and it creates these enormous divides and just uh, makes, makes the situation worse. And, you know, Part, part of the problem is of socioeconomic inequality is status inequality and when you have people on sort of people in a position of privilege making these sort of condescending comments um, that just hammers home that status inequality more and more and more and makes the problem worse
0: right i mean i I've, i i totally agree with you and i think there is such a wide conversation around food, five wide conversation around what actually it means to kind of eat healthy, live healthy, and all those aspects that, that really kind of consider when the wider conversation. Now, I guess the question off the back of that would be obviously a lot of people listening to this podcast are going to go, okay, well, this is really interesting, I understand, I see a bigger context here, but what's actionable for me, right? If I'm sitting in my home right now listening and I'm going, actually, how can I take any of this and make relevancy in my life? I mean, for you, Anthony, I mean, what, what is, what's actionable here for people?
1: Um, oh um, but you buy my books if you want that's a, <laughs> so, um no i, I mean yeah that, that's that's a criticism i get quite a lot i i think i think there are actual things from a personal point of view and you know i would urge oh, absolutely. people i would urge people not to feel guilty about how they eat you know not to let anyone else make not to not to make other people feel guilty about how they're eating, even if it conflicts with your sort of ideological beliefs. I think we have this this horrible attitude where people are, you know, people in different people of different sort of dietary sects. I was talking about, you know, um, different dietary ideologies do tend to attack and insult people for eating in a way that they, they perceive as wrong. So I think making sure you never make anyone else feel guilty about what they're eating is really important. Not feeling guilty yourself about how you eat, you know, not not feeling guilty about an occasional indulgence because you know that guilt's going to do you far more harm than anything a bit of carbohydrates will. So, so those are things that that, that are really important, you know. But but the the, the wider stuff, the stuff about inequality, it, it, these are fundamentally complex systemic issues. So it is hard. We do feel a bit disconnected from it and it seems like it seems like it's too big a problem and we can never overcome it and we can never we can never make a change big enough so people just go oh i'm not going to bother then um and, and, you know people people fall back on the on on the idea of personal choice and they fall back on 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 you know sort of the way they're going to eat or something for me i i think that's 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 the wrong way to look at it i think i think we are all quite empowered far more empowered than we know to really help implement fundamental systemic change and it's in the way you vote it's in it's in the way you um you know if you if you're someone who who has sort of savings and investments it's in the way you invest your money it's in the way you sort of we choose our political leaders you know it's in the way that we, we 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 campaign on political issues you know i believe that sort of inequality is, is one of the biggest problems facing our society. And so, you know, you, you try and vote and you try and campaign in, in, in a way that, 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 that gets as close to that goal in, in a small, small, incremental way. So, yeah, you know, it's it's understanding that the, the for these big systemic problems that we need to we need you know, we actually do have slightly more power than, than, than we realize we do. You know, we, we, but, it's, but it's it's more about about campaigning for change rather than pushing it back onto individual choice. Mm.
0: And I actually even really like what you said at the beginning of this sense of not putting judgment on other people on on their choices for what they eat. Mm. You know, I think we can all really easily uh, understand this aspect of our own sense of guilt with different foods. But, you know, in, in a very strange societal way, it is almost OK to kind of say, oh, you shouldn't eat that. Why are you eating that? You know, you, we have this sense of, um, you know, put placing different conversations in very common situations for people going, oh, well, I eat this and you eat that and mine's better than yours, or this is why I do that and that's, and this is why you shouldn't mm. do that. And I think for people listening, that's a really nice, simplistic aspect of this whole conversation. While there is bigger things at play, there's wider conversations that are worth being addressed. The understanding that actually to not have a, uh, a tangible guilt with the things we eat and not to have a judgment laden on other people, Actually addresses this wider conversation of the need to look at the foods that we eat as a holistic approach that deals with not only our physical health but our mental health, our social health, and and our aspect of actually you know not letting it impact our whole livelihood.
1: Mm. I agree. I agree. I, yeah, I think I think we have a, a, a fundamental problem that, that in, in a lot of things I, I write about and, and deal with is that we we like to create um, you know. We like to create dichotomies we like to think of food as good and mm. good or bad we like to think of things as virtuous and, and pure or, or or you know sort of benign and, and unpleasant uh, and we we like to divide the whole of the world um in that way and it can be quite unsettling when, when you try and think about things in a, in a, in, you know, with more shades of gray and and, and less, less dichotomy. But I think, um, in, in so many areas, that's, that's kind of the way forward. And that involves not, not sort of um, making people feel, feel guilty and and not sort of saying that choice is wrong. This choice is right, because that's very, very rarely the case. In fact, it's pretty much never the case.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, this whole conversation has been really, really refreshing for me. It's actually really nice to hear, not a different perspective, a wider perspective, and I think the way that you you approach kind of food, healthy eating from a, a macro point of view of our whole well-being it is really, really nice to hear because there are so many people who are looking at it very functionally on this does this or eat this food or try that diet, and and I can also understand why you know maybe at times there is a lot of of pushback that that you might get because people are trying to uh, convince you of a certain ideology as opposed to step back. Oh, this is. Uh, a conversation on humanity, a conversation on community, a conversation of celebration or, or interaction. So it has been really interesting for me. And I do wanted to thank you for, for joining for this little conversation. What I wanted to say, Anthony, I mean, what's moving forward, you know, a big part of this podcast is not only giving people insights and actions, but also giving them some sort of onward care and connection. I mean, for people, what's the best way to find out more about your work, stay connected, or, or dare I say, ask more questions that that you might be willing to have answers for?
1: Um, well, I, I, you know, I buy my books, as I said, um, I, and you know, I have a blog which I, I occasionally contribute to. Now, I, I tend to do sort of very long um, blog posts about issues which I'm particularly interested in at the time, um, which is the Angry Chef blog. I'm sure people can find that and um, you know, follow me on. On, on social media on twitter and, and facebook and you know I, I i communicate with lots of people so if people want to get in touch with me there's there's contact forms on the website and they can they can email me about the stuff i that i talk about and sort of find out a bit more about the various sort of campaigns and stuff that i'm i'm involved with yeah but but it's generally just um i, I encourage people to t- take an interest in 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 our food systems and understand how important they are and um you know have have these conversations with with people that people they know you know because people a lot of people have a really problematic relationship with food and mm. you know just try and spread a bit more sort of understanding and and, and enjoyment and, and happiness about about how we eat great um
0: well thank you so much for joining me on this episode it's been great to catch you up it's great to meet great to hear more about your perspective on this um for everyone listening uh, by all means please stay connected follow along catch up with anthony buy his books I know you've got another one coming out soon. What's that one? What's that one about?
1: January, I have a book coming out about um, the environmental impact of food and just sort of um, how how that's a, a new sort of conversation that, that we're having in often often in, in the wrong way. And it's, it's called Ending Hunger um, and it's out in January um, 2021. It's also about, you know, about how our food system developed to fight hunger and how that should remain at the heart of everything we do, even as we consider it's uh, sustainability. Great. Well, thank you so
0: much again, Anthony. And thanks everyone for listening in and tuning into this episode. And we will see you guys next time on The Quiet Life. Take a moment to download the Just Breathe app with guided meditations, music, and soundtracks created and recorded especially to calm the mind and ease the body. We've literally put the power of mindfulness in the palm of your hands, and even more, it's free. We've created this app as a way to support our growing community, and it is for anyone and everyone ready to step into a quieter conversation. So go ahead and download the app now. It's on iPhone and Android devices, And for more information about our growing conversation on and offline, make sure you visit JustBreatheProject.com, where you'll find more podcasts, lots of amazing stories and video content, and conversations all around mindfulness in the real world. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at JustBreathe. And don't forget to join the brewing force for good. You can receive 10% off your first order at T2T when signing up for their T Society. This will also bring you guys heaps of benefits such as rewards, experiences, and personalized offers. And all you have to do is head to T2T.com to start brewing the benefits and redeem your offer. Remember guys, that's T the letter, to the number, T-E-A dot You can find the link in our show notes below.